the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in today. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions. I'll do the best that I can to answer them according to the Word of God. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, there'll be a banner on the top of the screen that says, Call Now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our primary number. It's 340-9585. Um, today is going to be my last live program for a couple of weeks. Paul and I are leaving on vacation very early on Monday morning. And we need it, so pray for us. We want to hear from the Lord. Uh, Paula talked about that yesterday. Um, but still, there's a lot going on. It's Father's Day weekend. Happy Father's Day to all you who are fathers. It's a, a wonderful and club to be a part of. It is an honor to be a dad. It's a great responsibility, too. Um, but, but what a privilege and an honor it is. As most of you know, having heard Paul and, and uh, me share our story from time to time, we have two sons. They're 46. Um, Almost 47. Where are we in the year? No, 46 and 44. And uh, our 44-year-old son popped in the other day unexpectedly and just surprised me. And all I could think about when I was sitting there talking to him and looking at him, I could I just, Terry, you're 44. That's how old I was when I came here to San Antonio to plant this church. And and it just it makes you aware of how fast time goes. But um, Pastor Ken will be live uh, on the air for me next week, uh, so please call and ask him some questions. He's a great guy and a lot smarter than I am, uh, so he'll be here, and his wife May will be with him to do the date day edition next week. And then the following week, they will have uh, uh, we'll have pre-recorded broadcasts uh, while we are sort of chilling out at the beach and getting ready for our way home. So that's all coming up this weekend. As you go to church, remember, just be available to be used by the Lord. Instead of coming to church and thinking about what God or anybody else can do for you, ask the Lord, who can I minister to? Lord, show me people. Put people in my path who are hurting or people who are needy or confused. Put those people in my path, Lord, so I can pray with them and talk to them and and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. I tell you, that attitude, going to church, will change everything. 
It'll make you realize that you are the church, not that church is a place that we go on Sundays. Okay, let's get to questions for this Friday program. Here is uh, my first question. This is from Scott from our mobile app. Could you explain Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and what seems to be a contradiction in the translation, no one else dared to join them versus more were added to their number. What am I missing in these verses? Scott, that's a great question, but there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for it. It's not uh, a contradiction at all. Uh, You remember Acts chapter 5 is the place where Ananias and Sapphira uh, were killed by God for uh, introducing from inside the church. This is persecution from within that the enemy was unleashing. And because they lied, the enemy used them to try to introduce into God's new holy church uh, this whole idea of hypocrisy. And Ananias, you'll remember, he wanted the credit that Barnabas got uh, for giving all his stuff, so he gave all of his stuff, at least that's what he said, but but really he held back half of it and yet represented or misrepresented that he was uh, giving everything that he had, just like Barnabas, and he expected the same reaction, but of course Peter then got a word of knowledge from the Lord, and uh, Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. By the way, that's a great proof text for the Holy Spirit being God. And uh, and he was instantly judged and fell down dead. Some time went by, uh, a few hours, and then his wife would come in looking for him. And all of a sudden, uh, the same question was asked her. She lied, and she was judged in doubt. Now, when it says that no one else dared join them, the idea there is that the people that didn't dare to join them, Scott, they're the ones who were terrified because they knew there was hypocrisy in their heart or they, they didn't join lightly. In other words, people didn't go to church just to hang out at church. What they're saying is those guys are serious about their faith. If that's the holiness of the God they serve, I don't want to go there. Now, obviously, a lot of those people, Scott, were added to their number, but they had to count the cost. So in one instance, you've got people who are sort of on the outside looking in saying, well, he's serious about being in, about walking in holiness. And if that's the case, um, um, I, I'm, I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait. And then they added to the church uh, because they would deal with that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the result of that would be that they would be convicted of their sin, convinced of the righteousness being offered by Jesus, and be a part of the church. And the church grew and grew and grew and grew. You know, there are some estimates, Scott, that the early church uh, in and around Jerusalem, before chapter 10 in the book of Acts, um, uh, there are are some estimates that there were more than 100,000 Jews who converted to Christianity. You can imagine what was going on, but they would see the miracles that were done. They would hear of Peter's miraculous escape from prison. They would hear of the martyrdom of James, the first apostle uh, apostle to be martyred for his faith. And they would sit back and look, and yet they would see that those Christians had something that they needed. So while they were afraid to join Nobody's afraid to join a church today. Nobody thinks anything of go to church. That's my religious duty. But but imagine, Scott, if hypocrites were being killed. And we knew it. Everybody knew it. If you're hiding sin from the Lord, if you're being a hypocrite, if you're saying one thing, but living something else, well, you're going to go to church. I mean, you might You might be killed by the Holy Spirit. I can promise you, Scott, that attendance at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio this coming Sunday, would be way, way down. So that's the idea that no one else dared to join them. Great question. I love the way you think. You've asked some great questions in the past, Scott. Here is an anonymous question. Hi, Pastor On. I have a friend who's married to their first cousin. Together they have three kids. Their unbelieving family was against it, but after having kids, started to support their marriage. I share Jesus with them 
often and pray for their salvation. If the couple gets saved, would they need to end the marriage or would they be able to honor Jesus if they stay together? You know, um, I actually did some research with, with the law on this today um, because uh, um, things have changed so much. And there's actually um, only a couple of states that I could find that currently have laws against relatives that close marrying. Uh, in Texas, there is no law against it. In California, there's no law against it. Of course, in California, there seems to be no law against anything. Um, but but there's no law against it. Now, if if, if somebody came to me uh, for pre-marriage counseling and they said, you know, we are first cousins, but we love each other, we want to get married, uh, I personally would do everything that I possibly could to dissuade them from doing that. Um, that's just strange. It, it's not normal. Uh, but at the same time, there's no law against it. So if the couple gets saved, and especially because children are involved now, uh, they wouldn't need to, to divorce. They wouldn't need to get married. Um, Paul makes a comment in his letters about uh, remaining in the situation that you're in. When you met Jesus, what's going on? Remain in that situation. But, but honor it up to him. Give it up to him. Um, uh, so that so that he can sanctify it. In this case, um, uh, I would counsel them uh, to stay together, uh, to honor the Lord, um, to uh, make, make sure that as a family they were following Jesus. But as uncomfortable as it is if first cousins are getting married, as um, potentially difficult it is for the children, the offspring, uh, I would think that we'd encourage them to stay where they are and to honor the Lord where they are. And then let Jesus sort of work it out together. If they were in violation of law, my answer would be different. Um, you know, there has been a lot of genetic uh, research that's been done, and it seems to be uh, anonymous that um, the... the uh, genetic implications of first cousins marrying aren't nearly as severe or as um, likely as we have been led to believe in the past. So uh, I would keep praying for your friend and his wife uh, and for their children. Jesus would be the best thing that could happen to them. And God bless you for, um, for hanging in there with them. God bless you for... Um, being eager to share your faith. You know, the Apostle Paul writes to Philemon in the sixth verse of that one letter or one chapter treasure. Uh, he says, I pray, Philemon's the pastor of the church in, in Colossae, and he says, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. And Anonymous, you have a, a full understanding of every good thing, so keep sharing Jesus with them and keep them in your prayers. Appreciate the question. I've been doing this show for nearly seven years. It'll be uh, seven years, um, I think, July, July 9th. So uh, we're only a month away, less than a month away from that. And that is a question I've never had, and I almost never get questions that I've not had before. Here is a question from our email inbox from Nacho. He says, we've studied that Babylon in the Bible is a description or representation of the fallen world. So is the Babylon described in Revelation a symbol of a capital somewhere in the world that will rule the world? Or is it where present-day Babylon is located, the country of Iraq? Uh, Nacho, that's a great question. Now, we've talked a lot um, on this this show uh, in response to questions about Babylon being destroyed. You know, the angel Babylon makes the declaration, Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. And the idea there, and I think it's the 17th and 18th chapters of of uh, Revelation, is that, that it's economic Babylon and ecclesiastical Babylon that's fallen. So it's it's a symbol of the world. Babylon is a symbol of the world in Scripture. And um, so in those cases... Uh, we're dealing with more than just a physical location. However, having said that, um, it is clear to me in my study through the book of Revelation and in the prophecies about the end times that, that the Old Testament prophets have written, it is clear to me that 
Babylon or modern-day Iraq, as you point out, uh, will also be the location of the headquarters of the Antichrist. You know, Babylon is a city that's mentioned in Scripture more than any other city, by far, by far, more than any other city except Jerusalem. And Babylon has a picture uh, of, of the world thousands of years ago. Well, in the future, it will also be a picture of the world, but, but not just a picture of the world. It's going to be a physical location where the world will be headquartered. That means there is going to be um, a resurrection, really, of Babylon. Um, Modern-day Iraq is pretty desolate now. Uh, we, we saw what it was like under Saddam Hussein. Uh, he, in fact, Nacho, had uh, coins minted with Nebuchadnezzar's likeness on one side and his likeness on the other. Um, uh, Saddam Hussein believed he was the reincarnation of of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, and and I, I think because of the significance of Babylon in Scripture, it is the place where the Antichrist will set up his kingdom. Now we know that ecclesiastical Babylon is going to be headquartered in Rome, the city that sits on seven hills. We know that for sure. Uh, we also know that the revived Roman Empire figures prominently in the Great Tribulation, but. It will be from modern-day Iraq that the man that we know as the Antichrist, uh, it's where he will headquarter and centralize his power. And I believe, because it's close enough to Israel, that uh, he can be there and he can be always watchful. Uh, We know at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, will be causing no end of difficulties for uh, the Antichrist, and, and they won't be able to be killed for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, so he will want to be close. So it is a physical place in the book of Revelation uh, and the place where the Antichrist will rule and reign. I like that stuff, so thank you, Nacho, for asking the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. it would really be great if we could end my last live program for a couple weeks with some phone calls. Here is a question from Ben. Uh, he says, God is not a God of confusion, so is it the devil who causes confusion? You know, Ben, I don't think it's the devil who causes confusion as much as we do. I think we're the cause of confusion. Now, whenever Christians say, well, I'm confused, and that's not the Lord, so it must be the enemy, uh, we have to understand the role that we play in being confused. We don't need to be confused, but we are. God has given us his word. He's given us everything that we need for life, for living, for, for godliness. He's given us scripture that, that, that shows us how to walk in lives. So uh, we don't have to be confused. And I think that's one of those Christian platitudes that we throw around. God is not the author of confusion. Um, uh, we're confused because we're walking in the flesh. Uh, and certainly, Ben, the devil will capitalize on our confusion. He's going to use every tool at his disposal to try to destroy us. So um, you're right. God doesn't send a spirit of confusion. Uh, that spirit of confusion is caused by our laziness, spiritual laziness. That spirit of confusion is caused by our disobedience, uh, sometimes our lack of faith. But um, it's, it's, that's one of those things that we don't always want to blame on the devil uh, when we're confused. So uh, I hope, Ben, that makes sense to you. Anonymous writes in, Pastor Ron, it seems as though my life is a constant series of trials. Why doesn't God stop them? Uh, anonymous, I, I, you know, obviously I don't have a... a description of the type of trials that you're going through. Uh, My heart goes out to anybody who's in a constant series of trials. Uh, But you see, it's not God's job to stop them. Now, I'm going to make a couple of guesses. Please don't take this personal. I don't know who you are. And and so obviously, I I, I don't intend this to be personal. but, But generally speaking, when we're in a constant series of trials, we're contributing to those trials. 
we're making bad choices in relationships, we're making bad choices uh, in spiritual things, we're making bad choices uh, in terms of, of the people that we hang around with. Uh, and if you belong to the Lord and you're listening to a Christian program, so I assume that you are, um, sometimes those trials are sent by God. Not His job's not to stop them. He sends those trials because he's trying to get your attention. You know, there are trials of correction. There are trials of, of, of redirection. There's also trials of discipline. God disciplines those he loves. So anonymous, anybody whose life is a constant series of trials needs to really sit down, open their Bible, and find out why it is that they're going through these constant series of trials. The norm is anonymous. Now, we're all going to go through trials until we're with Jesus. We're going to go through trials. Jesus said, in this world, you will face tribulation. Not the great tribulation, but you will face tribulation. We could say, uh, exchange the word persecution for it. He also said, people will hate you because of me. They insulted me, they will insult you. And so the call to discipleship isn't a call to an easy life. So trials are something that we should expect. Both Peter and James write basically the same thing. Brothers, think it not strange when you're going through trials of many types. So the idea of trials is to get us to look up and be with Jesus, to the purpose of trials is to get us to look into uh, his eyes instead of looking at the things that are around us. But remember, it's not God's job to stop them. It's your job to look to Jesus when you're in them and he will walk you through those trials. You know, uh, Anonymous, um, one of those stories that always um, serves to, to to minister to people going through trials is uh, Peter, when he was asked by Jesus to come out on the water, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out to you on the water. It's a scary night. They think they're going to die. It's dark outside, and suddenly Jesus walks on the water out to them in the middle of this, this fierce storm. And evidently Jesus says, Peter, it's me. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. We all know that he was doing fine as long as he was focused just on Jesus. But the moment he got his eyes off of Jesus and on the things around him, that would be the crashing waves and the howling wind, um, the, the, the ferocity of the ocean, the storm. That's when he began to sink. And you know what he did when he began to sink? He cried out the greatest prayer, the most practical prayer ever, help! And Jesus extended a hand. So I'm going to ask you to take that hand anonymous that's extended to you in the middle of your trials. Jesus is there with you. He hasn't left you alone out on your dangerous lake. But he's offering you his hand. He wants you to take it. And when Peter took it, Jesus and Peter were instantly, supernaturally back in the boat. So they were either transported supernaturally or they walked together on the water, back to the boat. I personally think that they were transported supernaturally. I think when we really crowd to God and want his help in the middle of our trials, I think there are some times when we will be supernaturally translated out of them. They'll just disappear, they'll go away, and the Lord will smile at you and say, I've got you, and he wants you to trust him a little bit longer the next time. But sometimes in our trials, Jesus will take our hand and say, walk with me through this trial. And then when you get through it, and this is the norm, anonymous, when you get through the trial, there'll be a time of rest, a time of reflection, a time where you're encouraged because you've seen the hand of God deliver you. And then you just get ready for the next trial. I tell our church here all the time that every trial you're in is sort of like preparation, spring training for the next trial you're going to be in. And God knows them all. And every trial that God knows lies in our future, he will prepare you for if you give him the opportunity to do so. So Anonymous, I'm sorry your life is a constant series of trials, but let's be honest in prayer. Open your Bible and let's find out what your role in those trials 
really is. Are they self-inflicted wounds? Are they something you simply can't do anything about? Well, Jesus will be with you in either case, but if they're self-inflicted wounds, then what you've got to do is you've got to say, Lord, I'm going to change. I'm going to work to get closer to you. I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. You can even tell him, you know, Pastor Ron always says, just be with Jesus. He'll give you that hand. He'll pick you up. And then you'll find that everything isn't going to be as bad as you thought. I'll close this half of the program with these two, two thoughts, Anonymous. When you're in trials, there's two things you have to remember. The first is that they're never as bad as they seem at the time. I know how ridiculous that sounds when you're in the middle of a trial, but they're never as bad as the enemy and your flesh conspire together to make them seem. The second thing that I know is that they won't last as long as you're afraid they're going to last. Jesus will be there. Thank you for the question. We have 30 minutes left in the week, 30 minutes left before I go on vacation. You're listening to The Word to Stand On For Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the show 340-9585 hey a couple of things we had a question um uh, somebody wanted to know uh, about the song that introduces this program and and if they could buy it somewhere uh who wrote it uh, the song was written by a, a pastor who's a friend of mine in Fort Bragg, California. Uh, his name is Kevin Green. He is a wonderful, gifted musician and songwriter. Um, you can Google him and uh, put uh, Kevin Green, Fort Bragg, uh, California, and uh, you'll have access to his songs and things like that. But this particular song is not at all... Uh, available. He just wrote this for us. He did it. Uh, I called him one day and said, you know, our, our old song is getting really old, so can you come up with something? And uh, he came up with this. It was a little slower than it turned out. I said, well, I was thinking something a little bit uh, faster in terms of pace. And then he, 15 minutes later, sent this to me, and, and we've been using it ever since. So Kevin Green, Pastor Kevin Green, he's Calvary Chapel pastor in Fort Bragg, uh, in Northern California. Uh, the other thing that uh, I, I wanted to be sure to do is say happy birthday to all of our men and women who have served uh, either in the past or at present in the United States Army. Today is the 244th birthday of the United States Army. Thank you for your service. May the Lord bless you. And, uh, you know, when our announcer here at the church always acknowledges the birthdays of the different branches of the military, uh, he always says, you don't look nearly as old as turns out you are, but uh, happy birthday to those of you who have served in the United States Army. Uh, thank you for your commitment, for your sacrifice, and for your heart. Okay, let me get to a question that Brenda sent in. Brenda says, and I'm laughing because I've had questions like this before, I've always been taught that people are basically good at heart. When I look around, it doesn't seem that way. Now, Brenda, I'm laughing because you're right. We're not good at heart. Now, that's the, the, the way the world wants to communicate to us. Oh, no, we're good at heart. We just we're good people who do bad things. The evidence for our depravity is overwhelming. We're not good people. We are selfish we hold grudges, we lie, we cheat, we steal. One needs only to turn on the evening news or open a newspaper, whether it's electronic or the old-fashioned kind, and, and you, what you'll see is we're not good people at all. In fact, according to Jesus, Brenda, we're incapable of doing good. When the rich young ruler, who was, I'm sure, by the standards of the world that he lived in, a good person, 
when he went to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus stopped him right there. He said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, just God. And the reason Jesus made such a big deal about that is because in calling him good teacher, the rich young ruler was acknowledging that Jesus was God in the flesh. In my flesh, Paul writes, is no good thing. That is in my carnal nature. So we got to get over this. Now we we want to be nice, and we should. And certainly, Brenda, compared to me, most people are much better than I am. But I'm not the standard. The standard for good, the good that gets us to heaven, is perfection. That's why Jesus in chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5 said, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the only way to get to heaven. Now, the reason this is so important that we're honest about this, Brenda, is because we have this tendency, even as Christians, to think that, well, if my cousin died, he or she was a good person, they went to church. They didn't hurt anybody. You know, they paid their bills. And, and we like to communicate, at least to our own spirit, that, well, they must be in heaven. God is going to be, be generous with them. There's only one way to get to heaven, and that's to be good. And good in heaven means perfect. And only Jesus was. And one of the problems that we have, as you know, Brenda, is that Nice people, and I find personally that it's harder for nice people to get saved than it is for people like me when I got saved. It's because we think we're okay. I'm nicer than this person, or I'm better than them, or or even if we're more humble, then say, well, I'm at least as good as they are. But you see, nobody's as good as God is. When nobody is as good as God requires us to be to get to heaven. So this is where we've got to be Honest, there is no one that seeks God, Paul writes. Not even one. There is none righteous. And when we're honest about that, then we will become more passionate for sharing the gospel of peace with everybody that we run in contact with. Now again, the people that are listening to this program, you think, well, boy, you that's a sour attitude on, on life. It's not sour at all. I'm the least sour person you know. It's just the realistic observation of what's around me and it repeatedly lets me know how desperate people are for Jesus Christ that's one of the things that motivates me to keep sharing the name of Jesus so Brenda good question you're honest enough to say you know I've always been taught this but it doesn't seem that way we are not good people Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Paul. He says, "How can I know what my spiritual gifts are?" Um, Paul, a couple things regarding this, and 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 this is a great question because we all ought to seek our spiritual gifts. Now, the one thing that we don't want to do is only rely on our talent or our natural ability. Um, you know, if somebody is a great singer and they get saved. Um, well, we can we can say that the gift of worship is a natural for them. Um, if God really wanted to prove he was strong, he'd make me a great singer. But you see, that's not my gift. So while our natural abilities sometimes play into our spiritual gifts, it doesn't always have to be that way. And in fact, when somebody is coming to me and saying, well, how can I be using the church I'll just give them an opportunity to serve anywhere. I'll say, how about do this or do that? And here's the thing, uh, Paul, when we are in movement with the Lord, when we're serving God, then we're always going to have our spiritual gifts identified, and we're always going to be given opportunities to use them, and we're going to grow in the use of those spiritual gifts. I think too often people who aren't sure what their spiritual gifts are or even some who don't think they have any, they just kind of sit around and do nothing. And that's never the way to, to, to dig in and find out what God's got planned for you. So don't rely on your natural abilities. The second thing is read your Bible. 
living and active, God is going to share these things with you. Third way you can know your spiritual gifts. People are coming to you. I'm sure they come to everybody at some level. And we'll say things like, you know, um, I've been watching you do this. You, you do that really, really well. And we can get all shy and say, well, geez, praise the Lord. But, but the idea is other people will affirm your spiritual gifts. But if you're just standing still, Paul, then you're not going to have that opportunity. There are churches, and I hate this, Paul, but there are Christian churches that give people psychological testing. You know, this is what we're predisposed to do, or, or this is what my personality type is best at doing. That's nonsense. The supernatural gifts of the Spirit are just that. They're supernatural. And God doesn't need me to give him a good start. So seek the Lord. That's the thing. Ask him what your gifts are. Don't ask people. Ask the Lord invest in the word, invest in time in prayer. And I promise you, the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and start letting you know what your spiritual gifts are. And then as you're faithful to use them, Paul, he will expand on those spiritual gifts. Now, those are gifts of service. I call those sort of horizontal gifts. But there are other gifts, the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues. Uh, gifts of wisdom, gifts of knowledge. Uh, God can't give you the gift of wisdom or a gift of knowledge, a word of knowledge, if you're not in the Word, because you wouldn't understand it. So if you want those kind of gifts, get in the Word. The gift of tongues, in contrast, is a vertical gift. And uh, the use of these supernatural gifts is really important. So ask the Lord for the gifts that you want. And then receive them by faith. How much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, Jesus says. So, open your Bible, spend time in prayer, step out in faith with the gifts that you want to receive, and then let the Lord really bless you. Paul's last thought on this is, is this one. When you are faithful with the gift that you know you have, God give you one gift. When you're faithful with that, get ready because he's going to bring you something else. People that are faithful in few things will be given many things. But just be close to Jesus and then volunteer yourself. I tell people here at Calvary Chapel, Paul, all the time, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Where can I serve? Uh, I'll just say, okay, here's where you can serve. Oh, that's not really my thing. No, but, but let God make it your thing. And the people that take those sort of uncomfortable steps of obedience, boy, does God ever bless them. Those who, well, you know, that's not quite what I was looking for. Well, when they do that, they demonstrate that their hearts are in the wrong place. So thank you, Paul. We all ought then to really pursue the spiritual gifts. We can walk in the gifts of the Spirit. Here is a question from Regina. He says, she says, Pastor Ron, since there's no marriage in heaven, will our marriages here really mean anything for eternity? Uh, of course they will, Regina. This is a, a, one of those promises that God gives us. Marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ. So being faithful in a marriage relationship here, um, being loving, being kind, having a relationship that honors the Lord um, is going to help you enjoy. It'll increase your capacity to enjoy our marriage to Jesus. Now, uh, I'll use Paula as an example. Um, um, she stuck with me here on earth. And we get to heaven, she's going to be stuck with me there. But not as husband and wife the way we understand it now. And at the same time, while that seems a little strange, we will be closer together. We will love one another. Our intimacy together will be greater than we ever imagined. I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I don't think that sexual intimacy is a part of of our life in heaven in our new glorified resurrected bodies. Um, God's going to make Paul hang out with me. 
And so, yeah, it means everything for eternity. You know, when we stand before the Lord, the Bema seat, to be given our rewards or lose rewards, how faithful we were or are is going to determine our capacity to enjoy heaven. So we've got to understand that, Regina. So yes, by all means, treasure your marriage here. And you and your husband serve the Lord together. Raise your children to know Jesus. And you'll be hanging out together forever. I can promise you that. And you won't miss out on a thing. Good question. Here's a question from Holly. Some of these questions I'm just seeing now, this one always makes me sad. Why would God create people who are predetermined for hell? Um, Holly, first and foremost, God doesn't create people like he created Adam and Eve. We're just the products of the process of creation in a fallen world. And God doesn't stop people who he knows are going to hell from being born. Everybody gets a chance to enjoy the beauty of the Lord. Everybody gets a chance to, 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 to see the glory of God. So the suggestion, I guess, to the contrary would be, well, God, if somebody's going to go to hell, God just shouldn't let them be born. That's not what the Bible teaches. The second thing I want you to understand, and, and it appears that you've been sort of spoiled or I'll say it even worse, soiled by a a five-point Calvinist teaching. God doesn't cause anybody to go to hell. It's not like God says, well, okay, I'm going to let you be born, but I choose you, you're going to go to hell. That's not God at all. God's love is set on everybody, for God so loved the world. Not, Not just some, for God so loved the world. And so Holly... everybody gets born, everybody has a chance to be redeemed from their sins, everybody has a chance to to spend eternity forever with Jesus. The problem is that most of us choose to live like hell here on earth, and if that's the case, God's going to honor the choice we made on earth in eternity, and we're going to be separated from God. He won't force anybody to love him. He won't force anybody to go to heaven so God doesn't do this. Let's go to a phone call. We have Cindy calling on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. First, I want to wish you and Mama Paula a wonderful time at the beach. Thank and you. I was reading in Philippians, and in chapter 3, 5, and it's talking, Paul was talking about, you know, all of his accomplishments of being the Pharisee of Pharisees. And what I'm wondering is, why did the Lord choose somebody from the tribe of Benjamin, if there's a special reason for it, opposed to somebody from another tribe? Or could it be that uh, with Paul keeping the law and being the Pharisee of Pharisees, he showed a true desire to really follow God to the best of his ability? So I'll leave this with you and listen on the radio and have a wonderful time. And please, please at least put your feet in the ocean for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. And Cindy, if you come to church on Sunday, I'm going to use that. Uh, my, my feet and legs being in the ocean. We're going to talk about salt and we're talk about the healing powers of salt this weekend. So uh, in Luke chapter 14. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, great question. And, and you know, you, you can you can go to the website and get my uh, the study that I did on uh, Philippians chapter 3, because this is just a fascinating time. Paul was chosen by God. Now, we know that Paul was zealous. He thought he was serving God. He really believed he was serving God. His heart was in the right place. Uh, he says his zeal, though, had no foundation of knowledge. And it wasn't until he met Jesus, until literally he was apprehended by Jesus on the road to Damascus, that that uh, um, he, he, he looked into that face, he was blinded by the glory, and he knew he was wrong. So um, the fact that he was from the tribe of Benjamin has nothing to do with why he was chosen. Paul, 
in Philippians chapter 3, and he does it elsewhere as well. He just says, you know what, um, I, I'm not going to boast. How, how can we boast? Um, even if you think you're all that, you're not all that. And then he goes on to describe, if anybody had a right to think that, that he was better than others, that's me. He said, I was a, a, I'm a Jew circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin had the first king. Uh, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, in regard to the law of Pharisee, the strictest set among the religious leaders. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he's saying to Jews, look, I could brag about my life. He'll say to the church at Corinth, Prior to this, he would write that, you know, I've seen revelations that you guys can't even begin to imagine. But how can I boast I didn't do any of those things? And his whole point in mentioning his qualifications is to say, you know, in my flesh is nothing good. And then he comes up with the conclusion, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing that Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, he considers them rubbish, that he may be, that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own but that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So he's just restating that his past, his credentials mean nothing, that the only thing that matters to him is what he's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, a little bit of background, Cindy, that will help you understand, too. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he knew, he believed, along with most religious Jews, that if one Jew could keep the whole law for one day perfectly, then the Christ, the Messiah, would come. And no doubt, Saul of Tarsus wanted to be that man. And he strived so hard, I mean, even to the point of persecuting the Church of Jesus Christ, putting criminals, or, or putting Christians in jail as though they were criminals, and, and even to the point of death, consenting, giving the authority to have the the apostles, or the, the martyr Stephen, killed. Well, Saul of Tarsus thought he could be that man. He writes to the church at Galatia. He said, you know, I, I thought I was faultless. I thought I could keep the law, but every time I would see, thou shalt not covet, I knew I was busted. And so he's simply saying, look, there's nothing in me that merits what God has done in me. I don't have to hold on to position. I don't have to hold on to what people think about me. All I have to do is pursue Jesus because he knows everything. Thank you, Cindy. That's a good question. Three, four, zero. Oh, we're inside four minutes. So let me see if i got a question I can do in four minutes. Here's a question from Pamela. She says, in light of Mark 16 and 17, should we be able to heal people today? Let me read the passage, Pamela, and then we'll get to it. It says, In these signs, Jesus speaking, in these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snake with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will all get well. Now, remember, um, just before this, he's told them that their job is to go out and communicate the gospel. And so what Jesus isn't saying to us, Pamela, is that we can heal people at all. This is prophetic of the apostolic journey. As the apostles were leaving um, um, to go off on this unbelievable adventure, Jesus has now ascended into the heavens and, and left them with work to do. He's saying, now, if you do it, if you obey... Here's the signs and wonders. Now, all of these signs and wonders happened in the apostolic culture. Um, they did drive out demons. They did speak with new tongues. Uh, Paul, remember on the island of Malta, uh, a snake latched onto his hand, a, a deadly snake, and, and Paul just shook it off and put him in the fire. 
Um, evidently, there were some who were poisoned. I mean, their lives were always in danger, but, but they just drank it like Kool-Aid. And they completely placed their hands on sick people and got well. Do you remember at the beautiful gate when Peter and John were walking by and they saw a beggar asking for money? And at that instant, this is the first miracle that the apostles did. The Spirit of God spoke so clearly to Peter. Peter looked at him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Christ. Jesus, rise and walk. And they were able to do that. The man got up. Can you imagine how freaked out Peter must have been? Having not done a miracle like this, I'd seen Jesus do a lot of them. When he was sent out two by two, they did some miracles. But now they're on their own, and the Holy Spirit stops him in his track and says, tell him to get up and walk. And that's what he did. So all of those things happened. Those are signs of their apostolic authority. These are things that we're not to do. You know, we can see in the news, we'll see stories every year uh, making Christians look weird to get those snake handling churches and stuff, and they use this passage of Scripture. They misuse it. Now, these are the signs of apostolic authority. They validated the ministry and the word of the apostles as they went out into this world. So, Pamela, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Hey, I'm going on vacation. Please pray for me and Paula. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Pastor Ken will be here next week. Please call and make him. He's really smart, so give him really hard questions. He'll be blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a great weekend in church. I'll see you when I get back from California. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.